You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, I mean, we are in the thick of just playoff madness, games coming at us night after night. So I'm very happy to have someone else besides Cody to bang some ideas around with. Uh, he is the one and only Howard Beck from Sports Illustrated, formerly Bleacher Report. Um, I mean, you've been so many places, I can't even keep track. How you doing? I'm I'm good. Not that many places, but you know, kind of the the reality of modern media is that none of us are anywhere for more than about you know five to ten years. No one's getting the uh, retirement gold watch after you know a fifty year run. You know, uh, me and my friend, like some of my older friends in the business, uh, and I, I mean older respectfully, guys like Harvey Araton spent you know most of his career with the New York Times, where I I was for nine years, and um, I always wondered what that would be like to just you know, be part of the institution, especially that institution for that long, but uh, other opportunities arose. So, uh, but in terms of my NBA career, it's pretty much LA daily news for seven years, cover the Lakers, Shaq and Kobe, nine years of the New York times, mostly a lot of Knicks mayhem and some other national stuff mixed in seven years, bleacher report covering NBA at large. And then the last uh, year and a half or so at, uh, at SI. So, um, you know, that's 25 years Four media gigs, like it's not, you know, like it's, that's that's about the norm uh, for us, unfortunately. That that's a pretty good run, though. That's a that's a healthy, you know, two and a half decade run going back to Kobe and Shaq, uh, and of course the league has changed a lot over those years. Um, I'm a little sad this morning. I, I wanted I wanted to start with this, although I don't know how much I want to linger on it because it it makes me upset. the The Golden State series last night. Gary Payton. Uh, and as, as of recording this, I don't think there's any report on his MRI this morning. So we don't really know the severity of his elbow injury other than to say it looks like his elbow injury will have him out for the rest of the playoffs, which from a basketball standpoint seems like a huge loss for the Warriors. I mean, in this series alone, having a guy that can stay in front of John Morant seems like a big deal, um, you know. Make of that what you will, but uh, I was I was pretty upset about the play because it was one of these plays that you know Kerr immediately went to it in the um, interview when he was asked afterwards. You go to the word dirty, right? And whatever kind of whatever kind of couching we want to put on that language, um, it immediately had me thinking of playoff altering injuries, whether it's. Russell Westbrook's meniscus with Patrick Beverly going after the ball with a timeout or something like that. Um, Kevin Love's shoulder was another one that came to mind with Kelly Olynyk. Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard with the Zaza Pachulia. Um, a lot of those other plays, though, I went back and watched them this morning. And I, I think reckless, um, you know, there's other words I would think about this. The aerial one has always gotten to me. I don't know how you feel about this. 
it, it's sort of something that I think has evolved over the years where when I was growing up, I don't remember a lot of, you know, insane aerial challenges from behind and guys getting flipped around in the air and falling on their head and things like that. There was a play, um, a 2009 season, Rudy Fernandez against the Lakers. Do you remember this play? Trevor Ariza was tracking him down in transition, takes this huge swing. Uh, Fernandez like flips over, falls on his side. He missed a couple games. Ariza was ejected, but not suspended. In my head, that was like the first time I remember the league really starting to crack down on these aerial plays. And then to see one happen in a, in a big playoff game where like in the moment as it was happening, I was like, no, don't challenge that shot. No. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty bummed out. Yeah. And look, um, obviously there's the, on a just sheer competition level, there's what does this do to the Warriors to not have Gary Payton and all this. But I mean, look, this is one where immediately it's, it's the human level that hits first and not just seeing Gary Payton down in that kind of pain, but like you could see, so Steve Kerr, his emotions, like, were all just laid bare last night. First, there was the in-game interview with Jared Greenberg, which is just moments after this happens. And so Curran just goes straight to dirty play. And like, wow, like he was, he was fired up, obviously. And you could see that just the way he was reacting in real time before that interview. And then post-game, after Steve has had a chance to take a breath and, you know, kind of, of, of calm himself and, and come to terms with where things are and what happened, everything else, He's still really fired up, but you could also see in addition to just the anger that he uh, that he had understandably about the injury and about the play. There was also uh, you could see Steve's empathy coming through there. He seemed really emotional as he talked about what it meant to Gary Payton Jr. uh, to, to, to be out of the playoffs for a guy who has spent years bouncing around trying to find his home in the NBA and just finally did this season with the Warriors. And now, as Steve said, here it is the best time of year, the most important time of year. He's a critical player for them. He's gotten getting his time in in the, in the spotlight with a team that has championship uh, possibilities. And suddenly he's out, he's 29 years old and, and it's taken this long. Like, He's been in and out of the G League. He was. I, I just pulled up his, his basketball reference page. 2016, signed by the Rockets, waived by the Rockets. Then it's the next year, signed by the Bucks, waived by the Bucks, signed but to a two-way contract by the Bucks, waived by the Bucks. Lakers, Blazers, Wizards, uh, and then finally Warriors uh, on a couple of ten days, which then eventually turn into you know a permanent stay. Um, and like, I, man, like. Gary Payton has earned this moment and he's from all accounts, a really good guy and a great teammate. Um, And any injury, any, especially if it's a season ending injury uh, is, is just a big bummer and tough to see anyway, but given the context of Gary Payton's career, the role he was playing for the Warriors. And then finally the way it happened. Yes. In the air, completely vulnerable, clocked in the head by Dylan Brooks, the, the term dirty is, is kind of loaded, and, uh, you know, uh, J.J. Redick made a point of that um, on ESPN this morning. I just saw a clip. Um, I've never been comfortable with that word myself. It's, I think, used too uh, liberally um, for a variety of plays that um, fall into the area of dangerous, right? And I think there are there is a difference. Ben, you kind of highlighted this right off the top. Like, 
it is is reckless automatically dirty or is reckless just reckless because there's reckless and unintentional there is overzealousness there is you didn't really realize maybe how vulnerable he was or how hard you swung or how or how little chance you had of actually connecting with the ball as right, opposed yeah. to his head right like the, as great of, uh, as these guys are as, uh, as as athletes as much body control as me we may assume they have it's still like the game is split second decisions, jumping, running, sprinting, swinging, contesting. You're not, I don't, I don't believe, and I don't know enough about Dylan Brooks to, to make any judgment either way, but I don't believe Dylan Brooks launched thinking I'm going to clock Gary Payton in the head and send him sprawling to the court. I don't think he intended to hurt him. I do think that to the extent that we, we, we have this, uh, uh, this, this inability to distinguish between what's quote-unquote dirty versus what's just simply reckless or dangerous, um, it's because these things happen so quickly. And, you, and it's hard to read intent. And when you say dirty, it starts to judge. It, starts to, it's, it, it, it implies intent. It implies that, that he was out to, at a minimum, knock him out of the air, um, not necessarily to injure him, but to, to deliver a blow. And I don't I'm not comfortable making that kind of uh, drawing that kind of conclusion. Um, I think reckless is, is a fair term. I think dangerous is a fair term. Uh, you know, dirt, dirty, I think it brings in some other connotations that uh, I just think are kind of tough, but I understand Steve's Steve Kerr's, you know, emotions in the wake of it. That's his guy and that's his team. And, um, and uh, yeah, look, it's, I think for anybody who, loves the game and, and, and knows anything about Gary Payton's story, the way he's finally arrived. It just, it sucks to, to see his season probably in this way. Yeah, I, no, I, I think you some summarize that perfectly and sort of how I've been feeling a little bit more lethargic than normal after a great set of playoff games last night, because it, there's, there's the off court stuff with him. There's sort of his story. And then there's the, you know, the basketball nerd in me of like, they're, they're not going to have him to stay in front of John Morant. How does that change their lineups? How does that change their strategy? Then if they move to Phoenix, you know, Peyton has been a big player in those series and in those games in the regular season. So, you know, Golden State's going to need someone to put on the ball against Paul. Um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's THINKINGBASKETBALL for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. The other side of the bracket, the Boston Celtics, they were missing, their, I guess now we can say the, the defensive player of the year, 
Um, Marcus Smart, their sort of star point guard defender. And yet they had this continued incredible defensive performance. They lost game one, but I don't know how many people realized how much the Bucks offense struggled, especially in the half court in game one. I think Stan Van Gundy mentioned that at the top of the telecast last night. They had a 101 offensive rating in game one. Celtics only had an 89 offensive rating in game one, so that's why you win by 12 points. Um, but the half-court struggles continued last night, and I thought the Celtics turned it up a notch even more by realizing, hey, we don't have to send double teams as much on Giannis because especially when he's matched up with Al Horford and the the human brick wall in shorts, Grant Williams, like uh, he these guys can play him one-on-one fairly successfully, and especially without Chris Middleton, that gives Milwaukee not many options on some of those set possessions. I think, I think we'll see changes coming for the Bucks. But one thing I heard quite a bit yesterday, Howard, which segues into kind of how we started talking and, and what we're going to get into in this show, I think, is, well, look at how good the Celtics defense is without Marcus Smart. Therefore, does that invalidate or quote-unquote prove that he shouldn't have been the defensive player of the year. Oh, so many layers to this one. So many layers to this. And I saw the tweets from from uh, my buddy Tom Haberstrow last night because Haberstrow has been a, a DPOY truther this season um, about Marcus Smart and and uh, this, you know, very, very much a – he's not anti-Marcus Smart. He's just anti-Marcus Smart being defensive player of the year. Um, and so, yes, there was this kind of crowing – uh, at least by Haberstroh. I don't know if anybody else was crowing. Um, but it, it look, it, isn't this basically the same thing we, everybody just did in the first round with Jokic, that as soon as Jokic started struggling against the Warriors, ah, ah, who's, you know, is this, is, this is your MVP? Um, and so now now we're getting this with Marcus Smart being absent and then the Celtics suddenly be, you know, having a great defensive game without, like, all right, first of all, again, as if it needs saying, regular season award, <laughs> not about what's happening now in both MVP and defensive player of the year. That's first. Second, it's only one game. <laughs> um, third, we all knew the Celtics had a bunch of really good defensive players. Like Tatum has become a very good defensive player and Jalen Brown's a very good defensive player. And Grant Williams, as you mentioned, the human brick wall is an excellent defensive player. And they've got Robert Williams back there to clean stuff up and, 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 jump through the ceiling and, you know, block shots from the rafters and stuff. Like uh, no one was ever saying that Marcus Smart is the sole reason that the Celtics had the top rated defense in the NBA this season, or that everything flowed from him or that the entire system was built around him. And if you took him out, it would all fall apart. Um, no one was ever saying that Tom Haberstrow. Um <laughs> Tom's just going to like murder me on his next like Illuminati podcast. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's fair to use that to then try to diminish Marcus Smart's defensive player of the year award. If people want to um, deconstruct that on other bases, uh, bases, fine. There are fine arguments to make. Uh, you may make some of them, Ben. Um, but I don't think that game two of the Eastern Conference semifinals is somehow proof that we blew it on Defensive Player of the Year and Marcus Smart was not a worthy winner. Yeah, I've said that I've sort of talked myself into a place with at least being comfortable with someone like him and him winning Defensive Player of the Year. But I think you could try to um, 
throw an olive branch out there or take more nuance that is kind of relevant to the trickiness of postseason voting and regular season voting on these awards. Um, So instead of it being one game, you know, what if it were 20 or 30 sustained games or something where I don't think it's a stretch at this point. I'm kind of wondering if they're going to turn into an historical defense when we look back at it, assuming they don't just lose in the next couple of games. But the, the depth of defensive talent that that team has, and you mentioned it up and down from the Williamses, Al Horford, Tatum is now a pretty elite defender. Um, Jalen Brown is great on ball. I, I was Cody and I, I think we're talking about this on a recent episode. Like, is Derek White your seventh best defender? If Derek White is your seventh best defender, that's that's kind of almost unfair. Um, that's like 2004 Pistons territory. So the, the question for me is. When it, and we could do the same thing with MVP, but it's almost more interesting for Defensive Player of the Year because defense is this team-dependent thing, right? It's very hard to dictate on defense the way you dictate on offense. If we look at something like Defensive Player of the Year award, are we essentially saying to some degree, yeah, if Marcus Smart went and played in Utah with those other guys... Um, like let's say Rudy Gobert weren't there and you just had an average center, we kind of acknowledge that he would be the same player. He would be the same quality of defender. But that's not necessarily what people voting for him are looking at. And to boot, to go even further, when we kind of put together these awards that catalog the season, we should be biasing and indexing on things that are part of these more successful units for for lack of a better way to put it. Am, am, I, am I making sense? Do you, do you buy this? I mean, we've, we've texted back and forth about this, um, but I think the defensive one is really interesting. And you and uh, Chris Mannix went back and forth on this a couple weeks ago on your show. Sort of, what, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, so of all the awards, I think Defensive Player of the Year is by far the hardest one to, uh, to decide, to, 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 to discuss, to define. I mean, we spend so much time, as, as you and Cody did on your podcast, which uh, got me going a couple weeks ago and, and got me DMing you about it. Um, but you guys discussed, like, well, all right, what is MVP? What does it mean? What is, you know, what is the definition? There is no definition. Okay, but what is the working understanding of it or how do it? Okay, at least with MVP, and I, of course, wrote my treaties on this a couple weeks ago, also dismissing a lot of definitions or arguments or axioms that I think are not correct. They may be a part of the whole, but no, I don't think any one of them is correct. At least we have those for MVP, right? If you think it's best player and best team, at least that's somewhat of a working definition. And then you can kind of like tease out more information from there and try to figure out if somebody fits that. If you think it's the guy whose team collapses without him, an argument that I really hate, um, you can go and do that. With defensive player of the year, I think the one definition sort of that's emerged over the last several years. And I do think it's a more recent um, definition to the extent that it isn't a definition is um, that you are anchoring an elite defense, right? At a minimum, you are the linchpin, Draymond Green, Rudy Gobert, Giannis Antetokounmpo. You're the linchpin of an elite defense. And that, that, and you're, you're a linchpin means you're the guy who makes it all work. Like the Bucks that year we're not going to be whatever they whatever they ranked that year without Giannis being the key cog in that scheme that 
Rudy is a walking top five defense. So we know that he is responsible for the Jazz being elite. We know that Draymond Green is largely responsible for what the Warriors did. Although in some of those those early Warriors years, um, Yannick Adala was really important to, to everything they did. And, and you could, you know, Clay Thompson, who could guard multiple positions, and Sean Livingston coming off the bet. Like you had guys who, who multiple guys who did stuff, right? Um, but defensive player of the year, even more than MVP, if, if the definition is that you're the linchpin of one of the best defense, then it, it truly is, as I've said about MVP, not solely an individual award. It, it's become right. an, yep. an award that is some meld of your individual excellence at your thing, MVP being a lot of things, defensive player of the year being just defense. Um, it's a melding of that and what did it lead to team success? Because if we, if Rudy Gobert were still the same player tomorrow that he is or was three years ago, but for whatever reason, the rest of the Jazz guys, they just ran around in circles, right? Rudy Gobert this can't too, clean up everything. This isn't too far from the truth, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, actual circles this time, or maybe they're running in trapezoids. They're just, they're just uh, whatever. And suddenly they plummet to 15th. The argument will be how Rudy Gobert can't be defensive player of the year. If his team is 15th in defensive efficiency, that's a fair argument, but it speaks to my point with MVP and defensive player of the year, which is that it's not solely an individual award. You're crediting the guy for his contributions at a high, high level to a high, high level defensive unit or or a great defensive team. Um, And so it's like with a lot of these things, it's more muddled than we'd like to believe when we start getting into Twitter wars about who should or shouldn't have won it. And in Marcus Smart's case, look, uh, Marcus Smart is an incredible defender and you could put him on any number of teams and he would still be, as you just said a minute ago, Ben, he'd still be who he is. That team might not be top five anymore if, if, if it's lacking some of the stuff he's got around him in Boston. But then it just goes back to, okay, but is it an individual award or is it an individual award that is also derived from or dependent upon team success defensively. Uh, and I think just to wrap up my, my rambling answer here, th- this is why we didn't have a guard for 26 years. Gary Payton, the first Gary Payton was the last guy to win uh, defensive player of the year as a guard in 1996. Why did we go 26 years? Because some point along the way, we really moved toward, well, a couple of things. One is, for most of that time, we didn't have any defensive metrics at all. Never mind that the modern defensive metrics, everybody agrees, still aren't exactly that accurate or, or reliable. But um, we didn't have anything. So we had steals. We had blocks. We had defensive rebounds. We had eye test. Uh, we had how did your team look defensively? Of course, back then we'd say based on their points per game allowed uh, because we didn't account for pace back in the day because we were Neanderthals. Um, and so because of that, I think it automatically skewed toward bigs, mostly toward centers, toward shot blockers, toward Ben Wallace, toward Dikembe Mutombo. And guards got lost along the way. Did we have a lot of guards in the last 20-something years who might have been, who you know, somebody has to be the best defensive guard in the league, right? And who had to then guard Kobe and Dwayne Wade and Vince Carter and, and maybe Tracy McGrady and whoever. And somebody who was really, really good at all that probably should have gotten some credit for it, but they didn't because – their contributions just as a guard guarding elite guards, especially when, when, you know, shooting guard was in its heyday was not enough to convince us that they were more important than a big who could guard the rim. 
And so we, I think we've had a bias toward the bigs for a long time here. If nothing else, I think that Marcus Smart winning is a nice course correction or resets the conversation so that maybe we're considering positions other than rim protectors. Man, this is why I think Defensive Player of the Year is is so interesting in the context of sort of the philosophy or meta discussion around awards and MVP and things like that. MVP, it feels like... Yes, there's always been this, the team matters and the standings matter and and whatnot. But we can understand these moments where, whether it's Moses Malone or Kevin Garnett or um, I think even Allen Iverson's here, they only won like 52 games. These these teams that get into the mid-high 40s, low 50s, we can understand some player is playing at an incredible level and acknowledge them this season, you know, with the Nuggets, Jokic winning 48. Of course, it helped that his main competitors um, finished with 51 as well. So there wasn't a huge discrepancy there. But it feels like we're more dialed in and comfortable with that on MVP. Whereas with Defensive Player of the Year, you said it. If you're not in like the top five, maybe the top 10 defensively, and maybe it's because of how hard it is to measure defense and the data we have isn't super indicative for every player. We automatically go to a place of like, how can that guy be in the defensive player of the year conversation? His his team isn't elite defensively, which is a weird logic jump because, of course, as we've just talked about, we know great defensive players can play on defenses that aren't top 10 defenses. And we know, especially for defense... You need guys around you. It's a very team-dependent skill. I did a pod um, maybe a couple years ago at this point, I can't remember, where I was looking at how many elite defenses haven't had high-end shot blockers. And by proxy, a lot of times that means they don't have like defensive player of the year candidates. This is going back 40 years. And you start to notice stuff like, boy, every time Larry Brown changes teams, He gets rid of some offensive players and brings in some defensive players and their defense jumps. And so defense, more than anything to me, seems like this thing. You see it with other coaches as well. Tom Thibodeau, Scott Skiles, whatever, whatever. Defense seems like this thing where the coaches can come in, get need buy-in from not just the other four starters, but like the top seven, eight, nine guys on the roster. It helps to have other guys who can play these defensive roles. You don't dictate the game. And somehow out of all this when we go to vote for Defensive Player of the Year, that seems to land us, at least in the last couple decades, on teams that are at the top of the conference. So this this year, you're you're kind of almost disqualifying. There are also these unwritten rules, I feel like, where sometimes you get disqualified because you're not in the top 10. But Draymond Green kind of got disqualified because he missed too much time. I think he was going to win the award if he played... I don't know what the number is, 10 or 15 more games this season, something like that. So he only played 46 games. But then, of course, you can have a season where Gobert wins Defensive Player of the Year in 20, I think it was 2018, where he played 56 games. So this this just the defensive side of it to me and and kind of voting on that award um, is really fascinating. And since I'm now the one rambling, I'll give you one more thought. (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you one more. Yeah, no, well, I'll give you. Go ahead. I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad you brought this up. and I wish I had gone back to look. I have not gone back to look. So you, you make a really interesting point about the games missed thing and maybe an inconsistency there. Uh, I, I guess provably an inconsistency there. Um, and so I can't speak for all 100 voters. I can only speak for myself. And uh, I have to asterisk even that because um, I often do not remember who I voted for without going and looking it up. Uh, 
Draymond, in my mind, did not play enough games this year, but context, context, context. So if, if Draymond didn't play enough games, and that means he missed, you know, 20 something games, you know, your quarter of the season, generally speaking, for most of these awards, it, it's, it's, it generally becomes, I won't say disqualifying, but it's hard to win it. But it depends on who else was, was a strong candidate that year. So best guess would be, again, I'm not going back and looking at my own ballot. I'm not going back and looking at what the discussion was when Gobert won it with a similar number of games missed. Or was it the exact same number of games missed? Same. Um, he had he played 56 in 2018, and this season Draymond played 46. The only okay. thing I'll add is, for whatever reason, this year none of the top guys played a lot. Like I think out of all the big time players, Tatum yeah. is one of the highest registering guys in the 70s. You had tons of guys in the 60s. So anyway, so, keep going. Well, so a couple different things. One is every year it seems like players are playing a smaller percentage of the 82, right? Or the 72 in the pandemic years. Um, so we have a gradual eroding anyway of what the standard is. And so if, you know, somewhere in all that, we have to factor that in, right? Nobody plays 82 anymore. A lot of guys don't even play 78 anymore. Maybe instead of, you know, 65 being the bar, maybe it should be 62, whatever. But that's always been unofficial any, anyway. It's eye of the beholder stuff. It matters more to some people than others. I could not in good conscience vote for Joel Embiid for Rookie of the Year, the year that he played like 20-whatever games, and I voted for Brogdon. And, you know, we, we had all these arguments at the time about, like, we know that Joel Embiid's the best rookie. Yes, we do, but it's Rookie of the Year. It's a whole year. He did not play the whole year. He didn't even play half of the year or 30% of the year. He played like a tiny percentage of it. And so, yes, that matters. And so then if people argue against that, my question back to them is always, well, then where is the – isn't there a cutoff somewhere? Brian Winhurst? <laughs> boy, a, boy, we're just calling as everyone As long as I'm picking today. fights with all of my friends in the NBA media, because, you know, Winhurst has this argument with, with Bond Simpson and McMahon on, on their pod, and I enjoy it every time, and they come back to it every so often. But Winhurst was one who believes that, no, you just go with the best guy. But there, we all agree that there is some minimum number of games, Right. I don't, maybe it's 10, maybe it's five. Do you have to play one game? I, I don't know where, if you lower the bar to 60, then and you can lower it to 50, then to 40. I, I, somewhere there's a cutoff. Everybody has a cutoff. Games played matters, even for the people who say it doesn't. You all have a cutoff in your mind somewhere. Um, and so, you know, maybe that year that Gobert won it despite only playing 56, maybe nobody else had an outstanding enough defensive year who played similar or more right. games. Right. I, I don't remember. Yep. Um, that's, that's my last thought on that. Um, but, but yeah, like all these things I like to refer to as just kind of a sliding scale. There's a sliding scale in your own head. Each one of us, whether you're a voter, whether you're a, a, a fan, whether you're whoever, you're somewhere in your own head. You may not acknowledge it. You have a sliding scale that calibrates the games played, that calibrates the number of wins on the team. Because even for the go, the, we could argue the, the Jokic thing, like, Okay, people who voted for him or thought that he was absolutely the MVP, they said 48 wins. No, it's not uh, up with the usual historical standards, but it's not that far behind Giannis and Embiid. And besides that, look what he had around him, all that stuff. Okay, but what if they'd only won 42? What if he had all the same stats, but they had been the eighth seed or in the play-in? Some people would have flipped their votes. So what I'm saying is for people who say that the standings don't matter or games played don't matter, they do. They do to everybody. You just have a different calibration in your head. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The last thing I was going to get to on this, I'm still upset about Gary Payton winning in 1996. And, and here's why. why. You opened the pod with being upset about Gary Payton Jr. Now you're you're closing or getting close to the end here with uh, a Gary. Like, and there's like a whole Payton thread here that's very fascinating. Well, for different reasons. For yes. different reasons. And I don't, I don't hold it against the glove either. But in 96, they gave the award to a non-big man, a non-interior defender. And I thought, I can't remember where he finished, if he finished second or third or whatever, but I thought there was a significantly more deserving and obvious candidate in that particular season to move away from the, um, we're on the run of Mark Eaton's and Akeem Olajuwon's and all these extremely deserving, incredible paint protectors in a time where paint protection was crazy important because the game wasn't as spaced out and et cetera, et cetera. And that was Scottie Pippen mm. on the 72, the 72 win Bulls who had the best defense. It was like yeah. very, they didn't have a traditional interior big man. Yes, they have Rodman um, and other great, you know, they had, they had good defensive team, Randy Brown coming off the bench, Michael Jordan. But like Pippen had a tour de force, I thought, on defense that season. Anyway. So this would be a really fascinating <laughs> thing, by the way, because so, you know, there's there's less media back then. It's all print. Um but it would be interesting to go back to dive into to, uh, the, the Nexus files, Nexus being the service that, that uh, has all the archives of every newspaper in, in modern history. Um, it'd be interesting to see the columns that were written back then about why people were voting for Gary Payton over Scotty Pippen and Akeem and whoever else. Uh, I don't I don't know. I have, I have no memory of what that discussion was. It's before my time covering the league. Um, and it's a long time ago. And I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. Well, I can't remember what I had for breakfast either, but I, I do remember there was a thread of um, yeah guards, Alvin the sort of Alvin Robertson is the one I think of with the Spurs, where if you had a ton of steals, that was the indicator that people looked at. And this goes back to my sort of final point that I was going to get to in that last rant. I think the shift we've seen in Defensive Player of the Year voting, where... We haven't had this for 26 years, and now, even in the situation with Smart, I think everyone acknowledges, hopefully, that Smart is a great defender, that as a small, as a 6'3", 6'4", dude on the basketball court, he does a ton out there, but there's still this hesitancy, and I think for good reason, to say, well, now, wait a second, if I were starting a team to try to create the best defenders, um, I would want to make sure I got one of the elite big man defenders before I got an elite guard defender. And so for me, I think of this as like concept blindness, where you alluded to back in the Neanderthal, that, you know, the caveman days of our understanding of the game. We really didn't 
have it was mentioned it's in the media if you go back even back to the days of uh, you know Bill Russell and then Bill Walton after him and it was mentioned this idea of like okay you have a dominant big man but a lot of people thought the dominant big man was really important because of offense and i think statistically even if you try to trace it back to George Mikan like he was probably the first great dominant nba interior defender who also became famous for like leading the league in scoring that kind of thing so the concept to me is what happens when you realize in the last few decades, as we've gotten more data, hey, when I look at like on-off numbers or plus-minus numbers or adjusted plus-minus numbers, I can't be super accurate or confident about an individual player, but I'm looking at 10 years, 20 years. All the names at the top are your Duncans, your Garnets, your Ben Wallaces, Matumbos. I don't know why I'm pluraling these people. There's only <laughs> one of them. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. But that leads to like, I think, That's the last thing in this conversation for me that makes the defensive side so fascinating. MVP, you can get MVP in basketball today, 20 years ago, um, maybe even 40 years ago, but it's been a long time as a small player, as an off-ball player, as an interior player, um, as a two-way player. There's a lot of different ways to do it, Mm -hmm. and we acknowledge, man, that's one of the best guys in the league. Defense seems to have this divide where it's like, if you're really short on the basketball court... It's hard for us to say, yeah, in the abstract, on some random team, we think you're the best defender. But to the point of this whole conversation, everything we've bounced around about awards this season, um, back and forth messaging that you and I have done, the article you referenced that you wrote, is that good for the game? Is 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 it problematic to acknowledge that, okay, I wouldn't pick Marcus Smart first if I were building my dream defensive team this season? But when I got to guards, I would pick him first. And therefore, maybe along with the team's success, along with the fact that they've been incredible, along with his role, along with the games played, yada, 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 maybe it's okay to have him as defensive player of the year. Acknowledge that. And enough people acknowledge that. And he wins. Yeah. Look, first of all, I'm one who's squarely in the camp of the debate is never bad for the game. The debate is good for the game because debate, it means everybody's engaged, you know, Engagement is a very modern social media age term that we use a lot. Uh, Engagement with the NBA is good. Uh, I don't think we should have controversy for controversy's sake, and I don't think we should have um, bad reasoning or bad rationale coming, you know, producing bad outcomes and then having that create the debate just for the sake of it. Like, of course not. Um, I think that there are a number of valid ways of defining or viewing MVP or defining or viewing defensive player of the year. The fact that there are no specific definitions on the ballot is is baked into this. It means debate is baked into this. It means people's own perceptions um, are are baked into it. I, and then to me, that's fine. Like it was that was why I was like I really enjoyed the debate you and Cody had or the discussion you guys had, um, and was chuckling along the way because I felt so much of it was like even if Cody didn't know my name, I felt like some of it was actually aimed at me. Like I, I do this thing where I internalize it. Like, well, I'm one of the voters. You must be talking to me, but you know, leave me alone. <laughs> I, um, I'm going out on a limb and saying, Cody knows your name, but anyway, continue. <laughs> but, it's, it's, but I, I do, I find myself when people discuss it, it's why I wrote that column, um, which I wrote as it happened before I heard the pod, but I find myself, this is just the way my brain works. I, I find myself processing this stuff. When I see people on Twitter debating it, when I hear it on radio or wherever else, because I have been one of the hundred voters for a while, when somebody says, well, the voters are just doing this, or they just think that. And I'm like, 
Um, no, I'm, I'm actually not. And so that's why I want to actually share my, my manifesto that, that day a couple weeks ago. Um, because my, my belief is uh, I've, I've developed my own view of how these awards could be defined or should be in my own head over time. I adjust it over time. I think about it probably too much. Um, I come up with the best answer I can after not only looking at all the, you know, whatever data and everything else, but like talking to coaches and scouts and it's my best stab at it. I don't, I don't think there's a right and wrong answer most of the time on these things. I think there are some weird votes now and then every year we all play the game of like that guy got a third place. Who, like who the heck voted for that guy? Who the heck put that guy on VP ballot? And then we wait because we're in the era of transparency. We wait for the actual ballots to come out so we can see like who threw a stray bizarre vote. Uh, but overall, I think we get the top line right. Like, I don't think there's that many of these over the course of history, your Gary Payton point of 1996 notwithstanding. I don't think there's too many of these where you'd say, like, you know, we blew it. And maybe we did. But I don't even think that is like some crime against humanity. Like, I think we take the best stab at it, given all the information that we have given the amount of time that we have to devote, um, given that we have a bunch of people used to be 120 something now 100 who all have different views of this. I think the different views are healthy. Um, and as I said in, in my column a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again now, if we can just boil it down to a formula, to a statistical model, to an algorithm, great. We don't need balance at all. Let's just plug it in. Ask Siri for the answer. Ask Alexa if that's your thing. And, and we'll just move on. And, and we can debate whether the algorithm is worth a damn. Uh, and most people will be outside of that debate because we won't understand it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, this, there's always a bunch of other things baked into it that is not just the data, not just the numbers. The numbers are not authoritative. Uh, that's the other point I try to make a lot. Um, and I think it's fine. Like the, the discussion itself is is healthy and good for the game. Do you make a difference um, or have a kind of different approach with the all NBA side of your ballot compared to MVP? That's something that's very, you know, often discussed, right? Like yeah. all NBA, it, it just, yeah. Do you have a different criteria? Yes, or do you, do you kind of marry them in a way that allows you to acknowledge the most people possible or something? Yeah. I mean, this is where it gets frustrating for, for people, I think, because this is where people like me have some inconsistencies which I will freely acknowledge and just say, sorry, this is just the way I do it. Um, I, I try to be very consistent with the way I approach MVP, with the way I approach rookie of the year, which with the way I approach coach of the year, um, coach of the year is a really weird one anyway, though, because there's so many different ways, uh, so many different ways of, of, of awarding a, a, a coach who had a great season or whose team did, but whatever. Um, the all NBA versus MVP thing. I'm going to say this. Some of your listeners may not like it. You may not like it. Cody may not like it. If he eventually listens to this, um, there are different awards and they're different criteria to me, winning both historically speaking and, and, and in my own value system, winning is absolutely intrinsic to MVP. You cannot be the MVP off a 36-win team. You cannot be the MVP to me off of a 42-win team, um, unless you, like, average 100 points a game for the season, maybe. Um, but All-NBA, the winning is less of a factor. It's not immaterial. It's, 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 it's in there somewhere, but we're now talking 15 players. By the way, not the best 15 players. Here, here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do another one of these. There's this thing that people have done in recent years where they say, oh, it's the best 15. No, it's not the best 15 players. It's, it's the best six guards, the best six forwards, and the best three centers. And now we get into this whole thing. Well, what, what is a center anyway? You know, uh, do we exist? Um, 
Is that ball actually round? Is it orange? What I see is orange. Is that what you see in orange? Maybe you see it as chartreuse. Like, I'm sorry, um, person who I will not name in the NBA, but there are still centers and we know who they are and they can't both be first team. Um, So as long as the NBA is going to define the ballot, they set the ballot. I don't. As long as the NBA is going to keep sending us a ballot that says two guards, two forwards and a center on the first team, two guards, two forwards on the second team, um, then I'm going to fill it out that way. And so because of that, you have to apply different criteria and it is not the top 15 players. Like if they wanted the top 15, we would eliminate, we would truly go positionless. We would take them off the ballot. And I would just say, who are the best five players this season? Who are the second five? Who are the third five? And I wouldn't pay attention to, uh, we might get 15 guards for all we know in a given year. We might get 15 small forwards. Um, but do small forwards even really exist in an era of positionless <laughs> basketball? Um, so I, I agree. I agree with you yeah. on this one, by the yeah. way. And I think the historical precedent is overwhelming here because there used to be, you could be the third best player in the league and not make one of the two all NBA center spots back in the seventies. And in fact, this happened where in MVP voting, you had guys finishing second, third, fourth, and not making all NBA teams because of this. And as someone who has done a lot of quote unquote rankings of things has done a lot of retrospective analysis of players. The reality from my perspective is we just have never really had a mechanism from the media or the league that says, go rank these X number of players every season. That's never really been what this is. So I'm, I'm way more sympathetic to that because I've never really seen anything suggesting that all NBA says we should be listing out one through five on the first team, six through 10 on the second team and on and on. Yeah. And, and for people who are arguing that because of the MV Jokic thing and saying, well, they can't be one, two on MVP, by the way, I'd MVP uh, third on my ballot anyway. So that's eliminated that concern. But um, for people who say, well, they can't be one, two MVP and not both be first. Yes, they can, because there's only one center on the first team. And there has been since the dawn of creation and, they're both centers and don't tell me that one of them is a power forward and don't tell me you would play them together. If you had them both, no, you wouldn't, you would trade one of them for a, a, an elite guard or some other batch of players that better complemented the center you kept. Don't tell me you would play them together. Stop it. Um, well, if you were Philadelphia, you might, to be fair, you might try to keep them and, and see if it could work. And then Deandre um, Jordan at small forward. Sure. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't, I have no sympathy for this argument. Even if they are 1-2 on your MVP ballot, it's okay for one of them to be second-team All-NBA. It's okay. Fine. It's fine. Because All-NBA is not literally the top five and the second five and the third five. It is based on position and always has been. And if we ever want it to be truly just the best 15 players, irrespective of position, the NBA can make that decision, take all the positions off the ballot entirely, and we will be free to have maybe two guards and 13 forwards for all we know. I, it, but we're not there yet. And I don't know that we're ever going to get there. I don't think the NBA will ever go there, frankly, because one, this is collectively bargained. The union would have to agree. And two, it's going to disadvantage certain classes of players in certain years, potentially. Um, I, I like As much as we all talk about positionless, we're like in a position squishy era. We're not really positionless. Like there are still short dudes playing point guard and really tall dudes playing center by and large. We have a lot of guys who can, you know, we have Jokic who can be a, a point guard at center, but he's still a center and he still plays with a point guard. Like it's we like I, I, we get carried away sometimes with how evolutionary we want to be and how enlightened we want to be. Oh, it's positionless. Nah, kind of. It's it's position yeah. squishy. 
we're we're in a holding period. There's and especially with the fact that like your your defensive role and your offensive role yes. dictate very different positions. Yes. So so how do you handle And you that? have coaches who will still tell you like you are what you guard. Like it's less of a let's like I think a Larry Brownism. Um and maybe it goes back to somebody before him, but um, but there's this this idea that, that a lot of coaches and, and basketball people will still espouse, like you are you are what you guard, right? So Jokic plays like a point guard on offense, but he's going to guard the other center, so he's a center. I, I'm not sure if I buy that or not. Kind of maybe, um, but um, anyway, all NBA. So I, I the there's a bunch of exceptions I make there, and I by the way I made a LeBron exception this year, and I made a Kevin Durant exception on the games played stuff. Why? Because they're LeBron freaking James and Kevin freaking Durant. And if you don't like the exception, sorry, but I'm not going to hold hard and fast. Now, if, if, if they, again, back to the Embiid example, if they'd only played 20 games, okay, now I'm knocking you off the ballot. But if you played a respectable number of games and had outstanding numbers during that time, I, I'm not going to hold hard and fast to the games played thing as much as I do with, say, MVP, because again, Value V is baked into the MVP thing and being available is kind of intrinsic to that. Every time you said hard and fast there, I kept thinking James, James hard and fast. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Howard, nah, you know, we got to, we don't have enough time to talk about what's going on <laughs> in that series. Um, let's, let's leave with this. Here's my, here's my theory on all this. Right. I think we get so worked up about definitions and, you know, proving this one game or this playoff result proves this guy should or shouldn't have been MVP. I think one of the big reasons we do this is because we actually value the awards so much. We actually care about what the voters say. And in many circles, um, I mean, we just had the 75th anniversary. These things are referenced yes. as at sometimes at a at a scripture level, which I've <laughs> gone, you know, I've talked about lately how much that frustrates me because you can just do your own analysis. But it gets into this very weird circular place where they're like, you guys have to get it right. So I can tell other people that you guys got it right to therefore demonstrate that, like, is Chris Paul the best player ever not to win an MVP? Um I don't know. Maybe Jerry West is. I don't know. He, for me, he's in that conversation. But does that take away Chris Paul's ability as a player, his career, what he's done? How is he doing this? He was 14 for 14 the other night. <laughs> Do players age age anymore? Like All of these things, to me, I think can be separated and differentiated from whatever lens you want to put on basketball. X's and O's, on court, off court. Um, influence, right? That's a huge thing. Innovation, creativity, aesthetic. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, it seems like people really come back and they're just like, Howard Beck, you needed to vote the way I needed you to vote in 2022. So therefore, I could point to that as the thing that I wanted to point to the whole time. Right. So that when we do the top 100 players of all time, <laughs> you could say like, no, you, you guys screwed Embiid two years in a row. And that's why he's not going to make the top. No, he's going to make the top 100. Uh, I'm pretty sure in, in 2046 or whatever, like uh, it, he'll be fine. And that's the other thing, right? Like I know that there's also the all NBA debate because of, of the, uh, the supermax stuff that's, that's tied to it now, which should not be. Um, but for the most part, these are honors that are there just to be honors and, 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 and uh, bookmarks and, and, and notes to, to, understand the history of the game and a certain era of the game. And all that. But the fact is, if you're one of the all-time greats, that one time you were second team instead of first team or third team instead of second is not going to prevent you from making 
the all-time list. It's not going to prevent you from making the Hall of Fame. It's not going to prevent you from making uh, the, 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 the 100th anniversary. T- I, I don't think. I don't think that's the case. And, and you're right, Ben. We do use you know, those basketball reference pages and Wikipedia pages and everything else and that list of all the number, you know, all of your All-NBAs, all of your All-Stars, all of your defensive uh, teams. We do. We do count it, and we do kind of use it as a guidepost, as flawed as they may be. And so it's not irrelevant, but I do think that sometimes the, the discussion is just a bit overwrought. Um, and, you know, that, which is why I always think, like, the snubs discussions. So, like, I hate the snubs discussion. I don't even like the word snub anymore because, like, the, the idea that anybody got snubbed from the – man, if you, got, if you didn't make the All-Star game, you probably didn't deserve it. Like, if it was, if it was that close of a call, that's, that, by definition, is, 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 is justification. Like, it's fine. It's fine that you were almost good enough. Try harder next year. Yeah. Howard, um, this has been fantastic. I, I appreciate you taking the time and coming by. Is there anything you want to plug or point people to that you're working on these days that they should know about? Um, nothing I could plug in uh, in specific, but I do have three stories that uh, I'm, I'm excited about that I'm working on simultaneously here, uh, which will come out in uh, some order that I have not quite figured out yet. Um Two of them are pretty lighthearted. One of them is, is more of an expansive uh, look at a player that uh, that I'm uh, interested in. And all of that, I hope, is out in the next week and a half or so uh, before probably heading into the conference finals or maybe bleeding into the conference finals. And then uh, the crossover pod comes out twice a week. Um, Chris Maddox and I uh, do the punditry thing on the uh, the Tuesday episode. And then uh, I have a guest on the Friday episode. This week will be uh, Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles, the knuckleheads. Oh, wow. That, that'll be fun. Yes. Um, big, big thanks to Howard. If you want to support this show directly, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's the best way to support all things thinking basketball. We have additional content. There's a game one breakdown between the Bucks and the Celtics that was posted yesterday. If you're interested in such video analysis things, um, we have additional proprietary stats that update throughout the playoffs and a ton more. Thanks as always for listening to this one all the way to the end. Hope you enjoyed it. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope you are having a great day.